So this Advent season, we are imagining that we have a drone. And that drone is hovering over Bethlehem, and we are flying that drone high up into the universe. And once we get up there, we are turning around and looking back down. And from that vantage point, we can see the entire biblical story from beginning to end. And from that vantage point, what we notice as we look down at the the biblical drama is that it's divided into four distinct acts. Last week, we looked at Act 1, creation. God created this, this perfect world, and he created it with precision, and, and there was synchronization and balance and harmony. Everything was aligned. Everything was accounted for. It was perfect. And God placed the, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, And they had everything they needed. They had beauty. They had ample sources of food. They had intimacy with one another. They had intimacy with God. And it was good. And it was very good. What could possibly go wrong? So that's where Act 1 ends. And today we segue into the answer to that question. What could go wrong? Join me as we pray. Father God, uh, we know that you are the same today, yesterday, tomorrow. We also recognize that in many ways we are the same yesterday and today. We wrestle with the same temptations, the same struggles, the same hardness of heart that our first ancestors wrestled with. We ask you to minister to us today with your truth, that we might not be deceived by the devil that we might be pleased to submit to you as the rightful Lord of our life. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it was heaven on earth. Creation, act one. What could go wrong? Act two, the fall. Remember that God had been explicit with Adam and Eve. His very first words to them were were words of liberty. You are free. What incredible words. You are free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, except for one. You are not free to eat from this, this unique tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of this tree you will surely die. That's the end of Genesis 2, and now Genesis 3 begins this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, "Uh, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that is a story that I imagine you've heard before. 
you've probably heard that, that story many times. And so I, I want to just share two quick observations about the story. The first is, is really a question. What is up with the snake? Like, what is up with this snake? Who is the snake? And where did he come from? And what's he doing in the garden? There's no explanation in this story given to us as to where the serpent came from or how it is that he ended up in the garden. Now, we understand, because of the rest of the story, that the serpent is none other than Satan himself. And we also understand that Satan is a fallen angel who led a group of angels in rebellion against God and now in the garden, what Satan is trying to do is to incite a human rebellion. He's already gotten a third of the angels to follow him in this angelic rebellion against God. He's thrown out of heaven. And now here on earth, he's trying to incite a human rebellion to get us to rebel against God. Now, why God permitted any of this is really hard to say. The church father, Augustine, said that trying to answer this question is like trying to see darkness or trying to hear silence. What we can deduce at most is that God values his creation's freedom. God values freedom both in the angelic realm and in the, the human realm. He, in, in, he values it so much that from the very beginning, he chose to give us the, the opportunity to say no to him to disobey him. Seeing where that has gotten us, we might wish that God didn't value freedom so much. But consider it from his perspective. Let's use the analogy of marriage. Would you rather marry a spouse who had absolutely no choice but was forced to say, I do, to you? Or would you rather marry a spouse who who looks lovingly into your eyes and, and desires to be with you, who chooses to be with you and says, I, I do. What makes the I do so significant is that there is a possibility of it being, I don't. I don't. God desired to create a world and, in which we have the freedom to look at him and say, I do. I do love you. I do trust you. I do choose you. But that means we also have the, the possibility of saying, I don't. When you simplify worship down to just, it, it just the, the bare essentials, it is really nothing other than saying, I do. I do to God. This is at the heart of worship, acknowledging who God is. He is the rightful Lord and King of my life. And then my, my response to that, my rightful response to that is, I do. That's worship. That's what Jesus said is worship in spirit and in truth. So Satan, after his own fall from grace, now has this ambition, and that is to get as many of us as possible to say to God, I don't. I don't. I reject you as Lord and King. I don't choose you. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't want you. I don't submit to you. I don't worship you. 
This is Satan's job, and he's proved quite effective at it. Second observation is this. How did Satan go about inciting this rebellion? Well, he began by planting seeds of confusion as to what it was that God had said. Did God really say, and then he confuses what God said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, man, that's just a terrible God to say something like that. You see, Satan knows that if he can plant seeds of doubt, seeds of mistrust, seeds of confusion, if he can muddy up our minds as to what God has said, what God hasn't said, he knows that that makes us much more vulnerable to his lies. So at the heart of his plan is to get Eve and to get Adam to doubt the goodness of God. Get them to question God. Is God really acting in their best interest? You see, God knows that if you do this thing, it's going to be so much better for you, and he's withholding it from you. He doesn't want you to experience that goodness. So here Adam and Eve are. They're living in paradise, heaven on earth. They've got everything they need, and yet Satan manages to get them focused on what they don't have. Uh, It's worth noting for us that Satan, now hundreds, even thousands of years later, has not changed his strategy. He's still running the same old tired play against all of us. When you've got a play that works, you just keep running it over and over until your opponent figures it out. But we haven't figured it out. Here's the benefit we have. It's like we get to sit in on the demonic huddle and hear what they're trying to do to take us down. Their plan is to to take us down by getting us to, to distrust the word of God. Did God really say? Does it does it really mean that? Can you really trust the word of God? And so what if the Bible says it anyway? Don't tell me you believe this nonsense. Isn't the book full of contradictions? I mean, I've heard so many people say that. Did Jesus really mean what he said when he commanded us to give to those who ask? Did he really mean when he told us that that we ought to love our neighbors when he commanded us to love our neighbors? And what about this love your enemy thing? Surely he didn't mean that. Did Jesus mean what he said when he said we must forgive to to be forgiven? You know why that play keeps working over and over and over again? I think it's often because of Satan's voice sounding like the voice of reason. Satan's voice often sounds like the voice of reason. Just take the three examples I, I gave. Jesus didn't really mean give to everyone who asks. In the original language, it must have meant something different. If you give to others, who's going to look out for you? And besides, they're going to take advantage of you. I mean, you know what? They're just going to end up taking advantage of you. I advise you to do the opposite. Don't give to people who ask. Hold tightly to the things you've got. 
You never know, a rainy day might be coming. You're not responsible for anyone else. It's not your fault that they're in need. Just this week, Karen told me about a, a family in Comanche that had a, a house fire, and she has a little money left over from something, and she said, I think I want to give it to this family. And, and my first inclination, my response was, you know, we've got a car at the, the dealership right now getting fixed. We've got some expenses coming. It's the voice of reason, but I'm not sure it's God's voice. Or how about this one? Jesus doesn't really mean love your neighbors. Certainly doesn't mean love your enemies. I mean, that is just a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. Only a fool would love an enemy. No, I advise you that you only love those who you know are going to love you back. Oh, wait, God said something about that too, didn't he? He said that's what the unbelievers do, that they love those who will love them back. Well, you've got to admit, the unbelievers do have kind of some, some good reasoning on this one. Or how about forgiveness? Why on earth would you choose to forgive someone who's hurt you, who's wounded you? Don't be dumb. You're only going to be hurt again. Protect yourself. End the relationship. Move along. Sayonara. See you later. Satan's bottom line in all of this is simply this. You can't trust God. You can't trust him. You can trust me. I know what's better for you. Don't worship God. Worship me. Eat the forbidden fruit. What really is going to happen? It's just a little fruit. Satan delights in getting us to, to question God's word. Doubt God's word. Reject God's word. Reason God's word away with our carefully constructed logic and reasoning. He loves, he especially loves when we're uninformed, when we don't know God's word. Because he knows that if we have no solid ground on which to stand, that we're going to fall for just about anything. This is Satan's scheme, and we know it. This is what he's going to try to do to take us down. He's been running the play for centuries. We also know that he's going to try and convince us that God doesn't love us, that God's withholding something that's good for us. He doesn't want the best for us. This tired lie that Satan feeds us is that if we just take matters into our own hands, if we follow our, our own reasoning, our own logic, we are going to be so much better off. Our life is going to be so much better because we know better. Now, most of us probably don't have to think too long to know what strings it is that Satan likes to pull in our own lives. We know where we're vulnerable to these lies. His favorite line to us is this, you will surely not die. It's really no big deal. It's just a little forbidden fruit, just a little morsel of disobedience God probably won't even notice that you've eaten, that you've taken a bite. It's not like you're murdering anybody. It was a lie then, and it continues to be a lie today. Sin always brings death and destruction. Always. 
It is an inviolable law. Sin is always followed by a fall. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, if you disobey me, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. There will be consequences, always. So continuing the story, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining some wisdom, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the cool of the garden, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, it was much more than just a, a little nibble of some forbidden fruit. To God, Adam and Eve were saying, we don't choose you. And to Satan, they're saying, we choose you. To God, they're saying, we don't trust you. To Satan, they're saying, we trust you. We believe you. To God, they're saying, we don't submit to you. To Satan, they're saying, we submit to you. In this seemingly small, insignificant act of disobedience, Adam and Eve are saying to God, we don't worship you. And to Satan, they're saying, we worship you. This is nothing less than full-scale rebellion how we try to minimize our sin and act like it's really not that big of a deal. It's really not a, a rebellion against God. It's a small thing. Sin is often defined as missing the mark, and that's the, the correct translation of the Greek word amartia. It's missing the mark. But what we like to do is take that and think, see, missing the mark, it's really not that big of a deal. Like, nobody hits the bullseye every time. Nobody's perfect. But here's why that's a big deal. It's because we don't accidentally miss the mark. We've got the mark in the crosshairs of our scope. And then we say, no, I'm going to aim somewhere else. I don't want to hit the mark. And so we, we move away from the mark. It is rebellion against God. To sin is to rebel against our king and his rightful rule. The disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden is their declaration of independence. It is their declaration of independence from God. Our willful disobedience is nothing less than a declaration of independence from God. And there are consequences for declaring independence from God. No sooner do they eat than their eyes are open. I wonder how long the sweetness of the sugar of that fruit lasted in their mouth. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe they were able to enjoy the entire fruit before it dawned on them what just happened. And then the sweetness of that sugar turned into complete dread. This is supposed to be their Independence Day. This is supposed to be the day that they, they throw off the shackles of God's 
rule, of God's reign. The day that they declare we are our own, we know better. That they would function as their own authority, their own God. On this day, we demanded independence from God. And he granted our request. He granted our request. And consequently, we lost heaven on earth. Naked, but now, instead of feeling completely exposed and safe, we now feel threatened. Instead of feeling secure, we experience this strange new emotion called fear. Instead of the blessing of a pure and holy conscience, we're tormented with shame and with guilt. And instead of being drawn to our maker, just naturally drawn to him, we now have this impulse to, to hide. And somewhere in the garden, the snake is smiling. God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He restricted them from eating the tree of life. And as you might expect, sin escalated quickly. It's what sin does. Sin will always take you further than you plan to go. It'll always take you further than you plan to go. So Adam and Eve, they have two children, Cain and Abel. In a fit of rage, driven by envy and anger, Cain murders his brother Abel. You turn the page and you have this strange story about the perversion uh, of some, and what I think are some angelic beings trying to have intercourse with, with the daughters of man. Things are quickly spiraling into disorder and into chaos. And God says this in Genesis 6, 5, every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart are evil all the time. How quickly wickedness has progressed from this seemingly harmless bite of forbidden fruit to wholesale rebellion. And so God decided to wipe mankind off the face of the earth through a flood. He spares the family of Noah. God would start again. He would give them the sign of a rainbow. This promise, I'm never going to do that again. We're going to start creation over. We're going to start with this righteous family with with Noah. But Noah and his descendants, what do they do? They choose rebellion, like their ancestors before them. And then we have this, this progression to, to maybe the, the greatest evidence of, of the fall. They get together and they build this tower. And they want to build it up into the heavens. Why? So they can make a name for themselves. They want a new identity. The identity of being made in the image and likeness of God, that's not enough. We want to discard that. We're going to build this tower. We're going to make our own name. We're going to have our own identity. The fall now is complete. And ever since that time, every single person, you, me, we have all been born outside of the garden. Outside of the Garden of Eden. We're designed for Eden. Sometimes we forget that. This, this world that has been invaded by sin, this is not the world we're designed for. We are designed for, for Eden. We are designed for this world of precision and balance and harmony, this world of, 
of peace, where we have pure and holy consciences, where we, we are not repelled from God, but we're drawn to God, where we have intimate relationships with one another. This is the world that we're designed for, but sin has invaded. Sin is, is an intruder that has come in on this world. But deep in our hearts, God has planted this, this sense of eternity. We know it. We know we were designed for something else. We hunger for it. There's a longing to get back. Longing to have what we once had. Intimacy, love, peace, safety, beauty, fulfillment, joy. We long to get back to that world. But how? How do we get back? How do we break the curse of sin and death? That is act three, redemption, and that comes next week. This morning we are invited to a, a table, to the sacrament, and, and as I was thinking about the, the sacrament this morning, this is not a perfect analogy, but I think the sacrament, the table is to us what the rainbow was to Noah. The rainbow was this sign, this sign of a promise. I'm never going to do that again. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be faithful to you. The rainbow was this sign of love and grace and mercy. And God has given us this sacrament, a promise of those same things. A promise of his love, a promise of his grace, a promise of his mercy. Every time we eat of it, we are reminded that God didn't leave us in Acts 2. Here's the amazing thing about that. He could have. He would have been entirely in his own right to leave us in act two. We were the ones who planted our, our flag of independence. We are the ones who signed our declaration of independence. We are the ones who wanted out. And he could have just said, fine, have it your way. But instead, he decides to to offer a solution. He follows up his divine judgment with divine rescue. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to die in your place to atone for your sins. And in that moment, moment, Satan thought he'd scored a great victory, but what he didn't realize was this was his great defeat. And the promise of this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, back to the garden. When God was cursing Satan... He said to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offsprings and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. This is Jesus he's talking about. Yes, Satan struck his heel. He, he was crucified on a cross, but Jesus defeated him by that cross. The curse could have been the last word, but instead God gives us these promises as his last word. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name will be saved. Everyone who waves their white flag of surrender. I surrender my, my independence. I submit to you, Lord. You are my king. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who's invited to the table today? Fortunately, it's not those who are perfect. But rather, it's those who are trusting in Christ. 
for their salvation. If that describes you, and you've been baptized, you are welcome to this table. In a way, this table is a, a foreshadowing of Act 4. We get a little taste of something that's coming in Act 4 when, when we're going to be in heaven and we're going to enjoy that, that banquet with God. How do you come today? I would suggest come in grateful surrender. Come with your white flag. I surrender, Lord. I surrender to you and come gratefully. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Join me as we pray. Father God, we wave our white flag of surrender to you. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Forgive when we doubt the truth of your word. Forgive us when we dismiss your commands with our reasoning and logic. Forgive us for willfully and deliberately missing the mark. We thank you and praise you that you have not allowed our sin and your rightful judgment to be the last word, but you've allowed your promise to be the last word. We thank you and praise you for sending into this world your son, Jesus Christ, an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. We praise you for the sign of the sacrament that you've given us, that we can trust completely in your love and in your grace and in your mercy. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Lord, we come to you today in grateful surrender. And may your whole church soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.